0: On this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, the next steps for the DOD vendor cyber collaboration and the storage problem affecting government and industry. It's Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose. The FedGov Today television show debuting Sunday morning, April 30th at 1030 on ABC7 in Washington, D.C. You'll find it there and then every Sunday morning after that if you miss the TV show or the podcast, you can always find them on demand at fedgovtoday.com. The new national cybersecurity strategy aligns with the Defense Department's key cyber initiative, according to the chief executive officer of the organization that's partnering with DOD on that initiative. He calls the strategy a rebalancing of cyber responsibilities. Matthew Travis is CEO of Of the Cyber AB. Matt, welcome. It's great to see you again. You said recently we welcome the shift to rebalancing cyber responsibilities and the realigning of cybersecurity incentives that the strategy calls for. What do you see as the rebalancing and realigning of those uh, of those elements in the cybersecurity strategy? Matt, welcome.
1: Right. It's good to be with you again. I think first and foremost, it certainly puts those 16 sectors of critical infrastructure unnoticed that uh, how we've done things in the past is not going to be tenable as we move forward. So some see that as a heavier hand in government regulation. You know, we, we consider that minimum requirements like the Department of Defense has implemented within CMMC. So uh, I think that the administration took a, a risk management lens, uh, which I think we've always encouraged to look at how do we manage this risk. And in certainly critical infrastructure, Doing nothing uh, is no longer an option, and I I think the strategy articulates that. And it also, so it does rebalance some of the responsibility back on industry, uh, and and probably rightly so, uh, but also talks about harmonizing regulations, which we certainly uh, applaud, because as we build the CMMC ecosystem and provide that third-party validation of cybersecurity implementation, that's an ecosystem that can be trained elsewhere, and for To expect industry to have to to adopt uh, myriad uh, uh, standards across the entire GovCon landscape would not not be wise, I think, in most folks' estimations. So the fact that we can harmonize is something we've been advocating for quite a while.
0: Do you see anything in this strategy that rebalances, realigns, or in some other way informs directly the work that you and your colleagues are doing on CMMC, Matt? It
1: does. I think that in addition to putting that burden on industry, both in terms of securing the supply chains, uh, but also in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the understanding that a public-private partnership is is what's going to probably uh, be critical. The strategy says that. CMMC at its heart is a public-private partnership because DOD uh, reached out to industry to form this ecosystem, and that these third-party validations like FedRAMP don't come from government inspectors. They come from uh, accredited and certified industry assessment teams. And so that's something that we certainly were glad to see in the strategy. I do think it affirms the, the CMMC model. Now, maybe third-party third-party validation may not be uh, the solution to every sector, and that's where self-attestation, which as you kind of you know, look at that spectrum of risk management options, we certainly, uh, based on the department's experience with self-attestation, recognize that that didn't meet the needs of the Pentagon's risk management. A third-party validation does. But that's, I think, what the strategy allows for, is that a risk approach across the 16 sectors of infrastructure.
0: You've used the term CMMC ecosystem in this conversation a number of times already, and you've used that term with me on a number of occasions in the past. Um, before we started recording, you said that you're just about two years in at the Cyber AB. What is the state of that ecosystem right now, in your view, Matt?
1: For instance, when I talk about the ecosystem for your listeners, right, we're talking about uh, it's not just the DIB companies uh, and C3POs. Those C3POs, those third party assessment organizations, have to hire CMMC assessors, and those assessors, have to be trained and instructed and then they have to take exams and they have to be tested and there's the whole practitioner community the ecosystem that are helping these are the experts on cmmc and they're the ones helping uh, defense contractors get prepared for cmmc so all of those individuals and organizations have invested uh, into cmmc going back frankly even over two years when uh, cmmc was first announced they have uh, put their time, their energy, their financial future in to contribute to this ecosystem. And so they certainly are uh, a bit frustrated that we, we being the, the whole program is still not yet fully operational. Uh, but, you know, they are certainly in it to win it for the long haul, as, as are we. And, and so while rulemaking continues to continue uh, at its own pace, that we would certainly like to see sped up, uh, the the ecosystem itself understands the importance of supply chain security. Understands again how I think CMFC is blazing a trail for the rest of the government contracting industry to look at. And so it's a it's a great group of, of individuals organizations who 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 want to be part of of, of securing uh, the departments uh, of you know, important information.
0: Is there a risk that this extension of the rulemaking process extension is the best word I can think of? Um, endangers the program, at least in view of the enthusiasm that members of that ecosystem have in actually making it come to fruition.
1: So I use the term protracted rulemaking. Uh, (laughs) I think the lawyers would say it hasn't been fully extended, but it's certainly taking the full uh, 26.2 miles of the marathon uh, that that, uh, the law allows for. And I think, you know, I won't deny that uh, some parts of the ecosystem have uh, looked at this and said, I'm going to step aside and, and, and call me when you know, this thing is ready to go. But I think most of the current ecosystem, in terms of our n- numbers of individuals and companies who engage with us, are, are sticking in it. That's certainly, uh, you know, I think if, you're, if you take a long, you know, if you're playing the long game, which is really what CMC is. You know, China's been playing the long game for years. CMMC is the long game. If you're, if you're in CMMC to, for a get-rich-quick scenario, that's never what it was designed to do. And I think most of the ecosystem recognizes that. And while the, the, the continued wait certainly puts pressure on their own you know, business lines and business models, uh, those individuals who are either in the practitioner, the C3PO, the instructor or training development, they all recognize that this is going to happen. The department's very committed to this. The, the two separate rules show that. And uh, over the longer term, I think everyone going to do very well being in CMMC.
0: Yeah, the term that I thought of as I was uh, getting ready to talk to you from what I see and hear around the community, and I imagine you see and hear it too, is restlessness. Like, I, I don't get a sense that people think it's a bad idea and don't want it to happen, I think the opposite is true. They want it to happen. They want to kind of get on with it. Is that a fair assessment, do you think?
1: That's completely fair for instance, That's really changed. You know, two years ago when I first came aboard, I was still having having conversations where I had to kind of explain the rationale or, you know, defend, you know, the program in terms of, of the need and, and the imperative to do this. But I think that's where the and restlessness is probably a good word because you know, these are all uh, cybersecurity professionals in in our ecosystem. They understand the threat landscape, and they understand that China and Russia uh, and other cyber threat actors are not waiting for rulemaking to finish. We are under siege uh, from a digital risk perspective every day. And so that's the balance of, you know, we know, we see the threat, we see the cost of compromise within, uh, with and classified information and, and federal contract information. So there's an imperative to get on with it, because of that. So I think uh, that's a fair perspective to have that restlessness knowing what's at stake. And I think the department itself certainly knows that. But, you know, the law is the law. The Administrative Procedures Act called for this process when departments are creating uh, you know, new regulations and uh, we'll just have to be patient. And in the meantime, as I said, there's, there's plenty of work that we need to do to build this out. So when it is live, there's the scale there necessary to serve the needs of of the
0: DIB, what does an organization like yours do now that the national cybersecurity strategy is out? That's different than what you were doing before, and I suppose if you think you were on the right track, nothing is a perfectly acceptable answer.
1: Yeah, so I think this strategy certainly. Uh, you know, speaks to a wider audience than, than we speak to generally in our town halls, which are very much kind of the CMMC community and, and aspects of the, of the Dib. And so I think there's an opportunity for the AB to, uh, to, to, to really help people understand some of these mechanisms that the strategy alludes to that can really be put in place to secure our cyber networks and our information. Things like the third-party validation model and the public-private partnership. So I think we are now getting interest from, I think, outside the CMMC bubble more to to talk to folks and to have meetings and conversations about, okay, how does CMMC work? Because, you know, it is a very insular terminology. And as you know, Francis, and so I I welcome the opportunity to kind of, you know, spread the good news about uh, how this approach that the department's putting in place over time as it evolves and matures is very much a viable uh, conformity regime for other parts of uh, the government contract industry. But even when you go beyond that, if you look at other just general commercial enterprises, state, local uh, municipalities, I-, I think there's a role for the UMC model uh, for them as well down the road.
0: Matt, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about the National Cybersecurity Strategy in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today. Coming next week on the program, the small business landscape at HHS. The leader of the agency's Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization, Shannon Jackson, is here. And the chair of the Defense Business Board, Deborah Lee James, tells you what should be next for the Pentagon's civilian workforce. You can always follow FedGov Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And you can get every episode on demand at FedGovToday.com. The Defense Department's extending a pilot program that allows vendors to store spare parts in warehouses the Defense Logistics Agency runs, but it may not be following its own rules to evaluate whether the program works or not. Diana Maurer is Director of the Defense Capabilities and Management Team the Government Accountability Office. Diana, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. How does this pilot program work, and how did it come about? Welcome.
2: Well, well it's great to be here, Francis. Great to chat with you, as always. So... This pilot program was something that uh, Congress established in the National Defense Authorization Act several years ago. And at that time, uh, Congress was prodding DOD to frankly do a better job of managing its its vast empire of warehouses. Um, At the time of of the mandate, uh, DOD had about 4,000 different warehouses, many of those at, at DLA, the Defense Logistics Agency, of over 600 million square feet. Those are all within the DOD world. On the private sector side of things, DOD was also utilizing about 63 million square feet of warehouse space from contractors. So Congress said, wait a minute. We have all the space within the government. Why don't we try a pilot so that the contractors who are repairing military systems at depots can store their parts on U.S., in U.S. facilities, specifically in DLA warehouses?
0: I recall too that one of the advantages of this was supposed to be that the parts would be a lot more easily accessible for DOD rather than having to move from vendor location to a DOD location. They're already within the DOD system. Is that something that this pilot is also trying to evaluate or is this just cost savings efforts that Congress was after?
2: Well, certainly the, the concept behind the pilot was designed to address exactly your point, Francis, that why would you want to store parts tens, dozens, sometimes hundreds of miles away from a depot in a commercial facility when you could have it on the installation itself, much closer to where the artisans are doing the repair work. Um, So Congress, when it set up the pilot, asked and required more, more accurately, DOD to look at two things. One, did the pilot actually save money? So was it cost effective? And secondly, Did entering into these agreements between DOD and the contractors for using DLA warehousing space interfere with the contractor's ability to execute their primary contract, their main responsibilities, which was repairing um, weapon systems at the depots?
0: All right. Findings on both of those, and we'll take them in turn. Um, You write, DOD guidance establishes seven elements that must be addressed for a complete cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, what's the rundown on those briefly, and what did you find as you examined how DOD was, is uh, complying with each of those?
2: Sure. So so big picture, we found that uh, DOD definitely um, could have done a much better job in assessing the cost-effectiveness of this pilot. There are seven different elements. We found that DOD fully met one, partially met five, and in some respects, they kind of barely partially met many of those five and didn't meet um, the the seventh. Big picture, uh, by the time, when DOD submitted its report to Congress, the pilot had effectively barely begun. The pilot said that DOD could establish up to five of these things, five of these different uh, agreements. At the time the report was submitted to Congress, only one had really been underway for more than a year, and the second one, they only had a a few months worth of data, DOD in many cases was extrapolating or estimating um, some of those estimates, or many of those estimates didn't factor into things, didn't factor in things like inflation, and they weren't necessarily making a good apples to apples comparison. So we found that um, there was a lot of additional work that DOD could have done and should have done to more accurately assess the cost effectiveness. And so we recommended that they essentially go back the drawing board, and redo their homework on
0: it. Well, and part of this strikes me, based on another passage here, that this is an awareness issue, too. You write, DOD officials told GAO they weren't aware of DOD's guidance identifying the elements of a complete cost-effectiveness analysis. So they, it sounds like at least some places you found that the department didn't even know what it was supposed to be doing to measure these things. Is that a fair read on my part?
2: That is a fair read, yeah. When we, when we met with the folks who were responsible for pulling together the report, was kind of news to them that that yeah, there, there are these seven different factors, you know, and they're common sense things, like make sure that you have an objective um, thing that you're measuring, make sure you're clear about your assumptions, be specific about the alternatives and so on. They weren't aware of that, so we plugged them in on that. And hopefully when uh, DOD fully implements that recommendation, they will... Have those seven elements front and center when they redo
0: it. The second element, uh, whether this is working for the vendors in order to have be, for them to be able to execute on these contracts, you write uh, didn't uh, G- DOD's report didn't comprehensively assess how the contracts affected contractors' ability to meet the requirements of their existing primary contracts. Where were they lacking, Diana?
2: Frankly, they were lacking. DOD's assessment in the report was frankly lacking in nearly all elements of that. Um, they barely addressed it in their report, to be honest. Um, They talked conceptually about this being a a very good idea and we have no objection to that, right? Conceptually, it makes sense to have parts stored closer to where the work is being done. And conceptually, there is really the potential for doing things in a more effective and efficient manner, manner, maybe even saving money. But um, DOD didn't really assess it. one of the things that when we asked the folks who responsible for the report, it was similar to the, the, the discussion of cost effectiveness. They said, well, we didn't have guidance on how to assess that, how to determine whether or not taking a different approach to warehousing could impact the overall ability to get quality outcomes in sustaining weapon systems. So we recommended that DOD develop this guidance and that DOD go back and actually do a legitimate assessment of whether or not um, this this pilot approach has positive overall
0: impact. You've touched on the recommendations, uh, Diana, already, and it strikes me the bottom line is not whether DoD uh, complies with the the recommendations that you make; it's whether they learn the information that they're trying to learn. Where are they really falling short? Is it as simple as uh, as uh, meeting the recommendations that you make? Or is there still beyond that more that DOD needs to do to be able to answer what Congress wanted it to answer in the original NDA when they passed this in the first place?
2: I think it's um, sort of two levels. The first level is go back, redo redo your homework on this. Um, and the reason that's so vital is not only because it has a potential for saving money and making things more effective in, in warehousing utilization, but based on, in part, on this uh, this report to Congress, DOD made a recommendation to the Congress or drafted legislation for Congress last year that expanded this, turned it from a pilot to saying this could be done everywhere and expanded the scope beyond just military items. So um, PPE and health equipment and all the other things that DLA warehouses could store, um, it would expand the pilot essentially kind of government-wide on this in terms of what DLA could store. That gave us a little bit of pause. Not that they were opposed with um, that as a concept, but we thought that this report itself wasn't really sufficient to make that kind of major leap and make that kind of significant change in overall warehousing policy at DOD.
0: Diana Maurer, thanks very much for coming on to talk about your work. I appreciate it as always.
2: Thank you very much, Francis.
0: You can find a link to the work Diana talked about in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. Fedgov Today is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow the show any of those places so you don't miss the next episode of Fedgov Today with Francis Rose. It's coming next Tuesday with Shannon Jackson from HHS. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening.